Hi, I'm Marcus Dip Silas. And I'm Jaffif Chu. And you're listening to the Dip Chu Podcast. On the Dip Chu Podcast, we host honest conversations about faith and church. We also speak to guests from around the world and explore what it means to follow Jesus. We're excited to be on this journey of listening and learning. And we hope that you are too. So today on the Dip Chew podcast, we are missing a chew, <laughs> but there's just one dip. It's a double dip. <laughs> so t- <laughs> today I'm really glad to be able to co-host the podcast with my wife, Lauren Ashwood Dip Silas. That's me. Hello, Lauren. Hello. You have been on a podcast before as a voice to the Lecture Divina. Yes, I have. But today we're actually going to have a conversation together. So, can you tell us a little bit about who we're talking to today and maybe give us an introduction? Mm, sure. Our guest today is Janita Dickerson. Born in Delaware and raised in Maryland, 31-year-old Janita has lived in and traveled to different places in the United States and beyond. She often has felt that she's lived life straddled between multiple worlds as a traveled Black Christian woman. As such, she has often found herself acting as a bridge between two monolithic opinions, offering a nuanced view on various issues, including faith, race, and culture. In the years 2018 and 2019, she lived and taught English in Malaysia. Her return to the U.S. preceded the start of the pandemic and the latest wave of the civil rights movement by only a few months. Much of the American church's response to various racial and social issues has set her on a journey to dismantle the man-made aspects of her faith and to interpret and live out a more holistic and accurate interpretation of scripture. Welcome, Janita. We're excited to talk to you today. I'm excited to be here. It's great to see you guys and talk to you. Can you tell us a little bit about moving back? Uh, I mean, you you were gone for a shorter period of time, right? Like two years as opposed to some people who might be gone for longer. Um, what was it like to go back to the U.S.? What was new? What was, you know, different? Yeah. So it was just really interesting because just before coming back, I had the opportunity to kind of debrief with a counselor. Um, and one of the things I had shared with her, not knowing how 2020 was going to turn out, was like my apprehension about being Black in America because, my experience of being Black in Malaysia, and it varies depending on the person, was like really positive. Um, and so I knew I was stepping back into this very race conscious culture and a race conscious culture that was not Malaysia's race conscious culture, but like America's in which I am like an active or even passive participant. And so, you know, being Black meant something in America, whereas in Malaysia, it was just like, oh, I just happened to be Black. Knowing that I was stepping into that did bring a little bit of anxiety. And it's just interesting how like it wasn't totally unfounded, the anxiety that I felt about coming back and really realizing that like people have preconceived notions about me and that being Black means something here and it's not always positive. So you are Black from the North. Mm-hmm. which sometimes there are misconceptions that only the South is racist mm-hmm. and that 
the North were the ones who fought for black people, freed black people. Was that reinforced that like the North is not racist, only the South is racist and uh, or people in the North can't be racist because they fought for the freedom of black people? Like what was your childhood growing up in that like? Yeah. So funny thing, uh, Maryland is actually technically in the South, even though most Southerners would not consider us South, but we're like right on the line, right? So there's the Mason-Dixon line and we're just below that. Um, so a lot of people will, will refer to us as Mid-Atlantic, but it is a weird combination of North and South. Like some places feel more Southern than others. So it really depends on what part of the state that you're in that will feel more Northern or Southern. Um, and more specifically, I'm currently living in Baltimore, but I'm originally from the Eastern Shore, which is a very rural area. And if you go there, it has definitely a more Southern feel. And so I did grow up in that tension of being a more racist area. Um, it may not be quite as intense as the South, but definitely I was called the N-word at one point in high school. Like that was the first time. And even then I was shocked. But then going back into my childhood, I can tell you a time where I was in an after school program and this boy and this girl like very bluntly told me like, we don't like black people. We only like Miss Collins, who was like one of the only black teachers at the school. And then I think I was in somewhere in elementary school. I had a friend who was white. Um, she lived on the street from me. Like she had just moved in and we hung out a couple times, but I always had to leave when her dad came home because as her mom told me, he was prejudiced. So I guess black people weren't allowed in the house when he was home. So that was part of my experience. Well, I wasn't in a space where there were no Black people. Like there was a sizable population of Black people. But where I lived for most of my formative years was in a predominantly white space with, you know, as I would say, there were a few chocolate chips in the cookie, but, you know, it's still mostly, mostly white. Did that experience kind of shape identity for you? You know, I, I do know some friends who have described a minimized experience where, they did have to appear non-threatening in some ways so that they would be accepted or the way they dressed or the way they talked or not showing their real self to some of their friends because they were always afraid that they might be rejected. Oh, yeah, there was definitely a sense of that. Getting closer to whiteness is what ensures your social and professional survival here. So it was ingrained in me, even very young, even with my parents, like you spoke a certain way, we dressed a certain way, you don't hang around certain people. So like, to be honest, I grew up in a kind of a bougie black family. Like there are certain things that we're, we're going to do and not going to do. And definitely we're not ashamed to be black or whatever, but like there was definitely a sense of like being those, the respectable black people. And so, yeah, I had to speak properly, um, which is weird because it caused me to have to live in these kind of two worlds. Right. So like I look black, but apparently I talk too white for some people. Like, why do you talk white or whatever? You know, that was like a big thing. I don't know if kids still deal with that now, but that was definitely a thing growing up. And I feel like I have been kind of a bridge between two worlds with that, um, having to sort of... Um, sort of code switch, I guess, you know, speaking a certain way when I'm around mostly white people, but then like kind of relaxing my speech when 
around Black people so I can be accepted by by both sides. But it, it's a hard thing to do. Like you feel like you're not being sort of authentic. Black people were perceived a certain way because a lot of Black people from where I grew up come from like a lower income status. My family didn't necessarily fall into that category. My dad did growing up, but thankfully he he and my mom really worked so that we wouldn't have to like struggle or anything. So I was more of an, a middle class, but I know for most Black people, they were in a lower class situation, which means they were probably all living in the same area and all like talk the same way and things like that. But my parents knew like if we are going to progress there are certain things about being Black that you're going to have to leave to the side or dress a certain way. It sounds like you have really involved parents who kind of taught you how to be Black in America and the nuances that come with it. Can you can you tell us what it was like growing up, like with your family, specifically family culture? Yeah, there was definitely the idea, like, you're going to college. And I think they really pushed us to aspire for greatness. Yeah, my dad and my mom were definitely wanting us to like not run with certain people, I guess, not hang around, hang out with certain people. Yeah. And so it was just very much a culture where like we had to come off and have the appearance of being educated, sounding educated. But the expectation that was held in my family was not necessarily the one that was held for me in, you know, the black community. And so it was hard dealing with those two realities. Have you been able to process any of your feelings regarding minimization or having to, you know, appear a certain way? Is there, do you have those kinds of feelings or resentments of not being able to choose, you know, what kind of Black person you would have liked to be? Or is it more like, no, this is, it's who I am. This is great. Like, I accept this and I'm glad that I am this way. Like, are, are those some thoughts that you might have or have you just kind of never thought about it? Yeah. So I think growing up, I definitely felt like, man, I wish I just kind of fit in a little bit better. I mean, like any kid with any different situation they may be in, they want to fit in a little better. But definitely growing up and becoming an adult and everything, I am thankful for my experience. Like, I think it's made me who I am. I'm a person that like I'm a black person that just quote unquote talks white and and that's OK. But I still that does not erase my blackness at all. Yeah, I, I think I've grown to like who I've become and the specific brand of blackness that I've come to represent. I've only really gotten to know you over Facebook and Instagram and sometimes kind of back and forth chatting a little bit but you post really poignant words like it really stirs and touches something um in my spirit and in my soul and and i feel your words so you know one of the things that i had read that you wrote uh, which i had the opportunity to share with some of my friends in another podcast was the black experience and especially at the height of what was going on in the summer last year in the u.s with the racial riots and george floyd's murder. I can't remember the specific words, but you had talked something along the line of it's a wonder that even with all the treatment that Black folk have been subjected to in America by maybe a perceived or nominal Christian group of people, right, who claim that the founding fathers are Christian, that America's a Christian nation, that got to make America great again in that sense, you know, it's a wonder that Black people still are, are walking with Jesus, 
are still in church having faith, we wanted to hear from you about, you know, your own faith journey. Like, when did this become yours, you know, in that sense? Or or over the years, you know, what has evolved or changed or how have you grown? And it's kind of a big question, but you can take it chunk by chunk. First of all, I want to say thank you for your kind words about my words. I really appreciate that. It was nice getting to know you guys while while I was still there in Malaysia. And I really regret that we didn't have more time to like develop more of a friendship while I was still there. Me That's too. like one of my deep Us like <laughs> laments. <laughs> so, um, but yes, so far, as far as my faith journey, um, I would say that um, it's still becoming my own. You know what I mean? Like as I go through this sort of deconstruction process, that is, I think, going to be a part of it becoming my own and not something that someone has just given to me. But by God's grace, I do believe that my foundation is Jesus. And so I'm not like breaking up that foundation because the foundation was Jesus and not other people. Um, But I definitely want to pull out the parts that are more man-made. You know, I grew up in church I grew up in a more charismatic sort of word of faith background. We we heard the gospel. Um, it was a message that was given nearly every week. So we had that understanding of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And so I came, I believe I came to faith as a child. I can't tell you the specific date or what age I was, but I knew that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that kind of thing. But I definitely had a moment in college where I had a bigger understanding of God's grace and that I personally needed Jesus because of my own personal sin. So that's when it really became real for me. And, you know, going through this whole process of deconstruction, I'm trying to figure out, okay, what parts of my faith are like really in line with scripture or what parts are more given to me based off of the culture that I grew up in. You had mentioned that your deconstruction um, had largely revolved around um, the American evangelical church's response to racism, right? And mm-hmm. and even the rise of Christian nationalism. So it's not the typical or, or what Christian th- Christians think is the typical deconstruction process, which is, oh, like evolution or, you know, science versus faith or even like, um, LGBT or or purity culture, like some of those things, people deconstruct. Or I just, it's it's interesting to me that that this was, uh, you know, what spurred it for you. Can you like elaborate a little bit about that and and what that process has been like for you? Yeah, so I feel like it's kind of been a long time coming. Even before twenty twenty, I noticed that there was just like this weird, almost syncretism in the American church this acceptable form of syncretism that has existed where we worship these. And I know that's a very strong word to use, but we worship these American symbols of the American flag of the constitution and just certain ideologies. And so I've always had a problem with that or just, just the emphasis of being American in the church. Like I just felt like there's not really a need or a place for that. We can be thankful that we're American, but like proud to be American. That's like the second gospel that's preached in a lot of American churches. It's just been very problematic for me because I feel like a lot of the times politics have been wrapped up in the church and the church has been wrapped up in politics. There has been just an overemphasis on that and 
that you have to vote this way or you're not a Christian. And it's like a refusal to look at the nuances or accepting that there are nuances. And so that's been very frustrating. Um, I'll share a story with you. Around the time when Colin Kaepernick was taking a knee during the national anthem, the church that my parents used to attend, and I actually had grown up attending, the son of the pastor actually told the congregation that we're going to stand up and say the pledge. And it almost felt like I'm going to counteract uh, what's happening in our country with Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. Like he didn't say those words, but in the context, everyone knew that what that was referencing. And so it just seemed very much like you will submit, we are going to honor our country. And I'm just like, do you not see that this is like borderline idolatry? For me, I'm like, this is clearly problematic. You're forcing someone to say the pledge during church. That was very troublesome to me. There's just like a lot of pride in not recognizing our need for Jesus even after we come to Christ. And because of us not recognizing that we still need Jesus as Christians every day throughout our lives. There's no self-reflection like, you know what, maybe we have misstepped or maybe we have gone astray. In a nutshell, I would say like there is some undealt with idolatry that's in the church that is masked as something else, but I just see it as idolatry. Pre-2020, you kind of already had some of these, you felt some of these rumblings within, right? At least for me, like the drift at least that I saw was really wide was when the 2016 elections, right before 2016 elections, where um, people that I had trusted or or thought were standing in certain ways were starting to lend support to Trump, regardless of, you know, what he had said or the things that had come out about what he had done. I'm, I'm wondering, like, did any of that spur you to move to Malaysia? Like, what led to you moving overseas? I wouldn't say that that spurred me, but it definitely made it easier um, for me to want to go to Malaysia. But I do, I feel like I need to be honest with you before we jump into me moving to Malaysia. In 2016, I was not very like into politics or anything like that. But I recognize that like this man is very problematic. But I was still very much in this white evangelical world where it was like that was very pulling me. But also being black was pulling me. And also just seeing the things that he was saying was very problematic. But on the election day, I was very torn. And I talked to a friend and I was like, like, I really don't know, like, who to vote for. And that was not a good, that was not a good space to be in. That was not a good space to be in. I didn't do, like, my own research. And so I was like, I don't know who to vote for. And she was like, well, you know, there was hesitancy in her voice. She essentially said that neither candidate was ideal, but that Trump would ensure certain freedoms for the American church so that we would be able to continue doing what we need to do, like as Christians, like we can continue to be Christians and do the good things that Christians are supposed to do. And so at that time, that logic sounded good to me, even though I I never felt good about Trump. So I voted for him. That was just, I felt like, okay, well, I guess this is the right thing to do. And I was very much still going along to get along or like just going along with what others said. But I think 2020 has really pushed me to like really look into things myself. Um, And I'm a person that has, I've always been kind of middle of the line. Like I voted for Obama when he first got into office. And then like, I've been back and forth, like voting Democrat, Republican. And definitely the last time I voted Democrat, 
100%. But there's just been like kind of an evolution within me regarding politics and stuff. I never wanted to vote for him, but I felt like I had to. I voted for him, but also hoped that he wasn't actually going to get in office. If that makes any sort of sense at all. It doesn't, I know. Um, But that was kind of the space I was in. 2016 going into 2017, I was leaving the teaching profession in the U.S. and I thought I was going to be done teaching, period. But God opened a door for me to teach English in Malaysia. And I really felt like I was supposed to go there. So yeah, it just happened that, you know, my my contract for one job is ending. And then I always wanted to travel before I turned 30 and like kind of live overseas. So it was just really good timing for me to go over there as a 27-year-old, soon to be 28-year-old. And that was just an incredible experience. Earlier, you had said that um, your Black experience in Malaysia was very different. Can you share a bit with us? How was it? like? Yeah, so I honestly didn't know what to expect going into it. Like, I did some research and I've heard maybe some Nigerians in other parts of the country may have received discrimination. But living in Penang was was really good. I was really well received by my kids, my um, Chinese students really all of them. And I felt that my nationality trumped my ethnicity. Like the fact that I was American provided me certain privileges that I didn't even experience as an American in America. Just a certain sort of respect, especially being a teacher. So that was like, oh my gosh, like this is what privilege feels like. This is great. I love this. Um, <laughs> like this is what it's like being white. I want some of this over there. <laughs> right. So I felt just very um, safe. I felt like people listened to me as maybe a foreigner or as an American, but not, oh, this this Black woman, whatever. It was just like, oh, she's an American that happens to be Black rather than a Black American. And that was with dealing with like Asians and people from other countries. Now, if we're talking about like Westerners, as Malaysians will say, like people from Canada, America, um, maybe even the UK, they might have a preconceived notion. And I felt like it was different interacting with them because they may have personal experiences or s- certain biases that um, they've always operated with. So sometimes I can like sense that, but it was just really nice being in Malaysia because I felt like I was very well received by my coworkers and the people that I got to know while I was there. And honestly, it was incredible. I loved it. You've kind of had to straddle these this two worlds, right? These two spheres. I'm just wondering the emotional side or, or even the, maybe even the spiritual side. Like, what does that look like? What is that pull like? You know, what does it do to a person? How do you stay sane or how do you stay motivated to be equally invested in both or to show up in both, you know, and not just you know, do a show or kind of be like, okay, yeah, I'm just going to, you know, like, what is that process like for you? Um, So it's nice on the one hand, because, because I live between two worlds, like multiple worlds, like having lived overseas, but also being from America, being black, but also being around a lot of white people speaking multiple languages. It gives me a space of like understanding so I can kind of see multiple sides of things, um, which is nice because I think it's helpful to understand things, but also it can be distressing because sometimes I see interactions with people from different cultures and I can just see 
how there is a cultural misunderstanding. I'm like, oh my goodness. I can just see how like, oh my gosh, culturally, I feel like they are missing each other right now. One is perceiving one thing as disrespect. The other person um, thinks that they're being like two in their face. Like, oh my gosh, sometimes it's just, it's just hard to see. And I'm like, I understand that you guys are coming from two different cultures, but sometimes Americans don't realize like, culturally how different we are and how different things are perceived. Um, So like living between two worlds causes me to kind of see, I see both sides and I also see how people miss each other. And it's like, it can be very distressing to me. You started a TikTok last year. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I was not expecting this to come (laughs) up. I follow a few black TikTok creators who are very niche doing black church stuff. From what I know and have seen about the black church, like you, you carry that expressiveness, you know, in a sense. And and it was really fun to watch some of your TikToks that were really entertaining. So I just, I want to ask like, how connected are you in terms of like faith heritage to um, a black church? Do you attend church currently? Like, Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about that? It's interesting that you said that. So my mom grew up in a black church. And so we would periodically go back and visit that church. Being black, you know, we're still listening to gospel music. If something is on TBN, Trinity Broadcasting Network, like gospel singers, we're going to listen to that or like any other gospel performances or shows we're going to like listen to. So Definitely at home, there was still that Black church feel, I guess. And I've been to like other friends' churches, so I'm not completely removed from that world, even though that wasn't like my primary place of worship. So I I mean, I know the lingo, like there's different things that you do. I listen to the saying, someone could say the first half and I know the other half. It's nice that I'm not completely like, what? Like I know kind of what's going on. (laughs) Um, So. I attend a gospel community that is with a predominantly white church and it's a church plant. So it's it's pretty new and it's it's here in the city in this specific neighborhood. I can walk there in 20 minutes. So I'm still going to that in the gospel community. It's essentially a Bible study. You know, it's a life group. You guys are doing life together, that kind of thing. The last few Sundays, I have been listening to um, this church called Epiphany Fellowship. It's in Philly. So logistically, I wouldn't be able to like physically attend, but I absolutely adore that church. Um, they are just very Christ centric. Like they love Jesus. They love the gospel. I feel that they are very theologically sound and they take very seriously the issues of racial and social justice. And so I just feel like they are very biblically relevant, but also very culturally relevant. And I've just really appreciated that in this season. A lot of their messages and just the discussions that they've had have been just like a healing balm, honestly, in this season that I don't think I would be able to get as much from a predominantly white church just because I feel like when you've been through stuff, like you can you can help people in a way that people that haven't been hurt can do. And so I've I appreciate that, like being able to virtually be a part of, even though I'm not officially a part of that church, I can virtually be a part of a black community that is also kind of working through these same sort of like feelings of lament and wanting to be Jesus focused, but also wanting to deal with these 
racial and social issues and not just saying like, oh, we're going to dedicate this one day to talking about this or having this one discussion. But, hey, we're going to um, we're going to get into we're going to we're going to talk about this and we're going to work through this and we're going to just kind of have a safe space to communicate our our feelings about what's going on in the world. Mm. Is lament a big part of your personal deconstruction? Yes. Yes. Um, and I really wanted to be clear that I am not coming from a place of bitterness or like straight anger, even though there's nothing wrong with being angry as long as you're not sinning. But it is a deep sense of of sadness. I think lament is just a deep sense of sadness um, over the state of something. And I've definitely been in a state of just lament knowing how, again, going back to the living between two worlds, knowing how the way the church has been acting, being focused on conspiracy theories, not listening to black and brown voices, how damaging that has been to their witness and their effectiveness in this country. And also just how hurtful it is for their own supposed black brothers and sisters. So it's definitely been a deep sense of just really just sadness, just a deep sadness and also disappointment kind of. We should be doing better. Like I believe in the church. I love the church. I want us to be, you know, that bride that's like glistening and like pointing people towards Jesus. And I feel like we have been falling short of that. So so what does dismantling man-made aspects of faith look like for you? Like what are some practical things that you do or, you know, what have you attempted to do in terms of understanding your faith and the collective faith? I've definitely been like trying to like listen to podcasts. I need to do a better job about reading. I'm not going to lie. I'm like not going to sit here and say that I've done a ton of reading up until this point. Um, But it's something that I know I need to do more of. But that's definitely been something. Um, And I think just the way the church has kind of leaned into these conspiracy theories and just choosing to listen to um, articles or videos that reinforce their, their biases rather than listening to um, people that they know and supposedly have trusted their whole lives um, has caused me to feel that a lot of the, and I'm not going to say all, but a lot of the church and a lot of its members are, um, and I mean, capital C church are intellectually untrustworthy. Um, I don't feel that, okay, if you have this sort of um, cognitive dissonance about certain things and are like kind of refusing certain facts, I'm like, I don't know if I can trust you with with things of, of the Bible and just thinking about um, how scripture has been used to oppress people and to discriminate and to do all sorts of things. I'm just wondering like, what else, how else have we gotten it wrong? You know, I think God is exceedingly gracious. And just because he hasn't like dealt with um, sins that have come about because of the way we interpret scripture doesn't mean that he's okay with it. American slavery was allowed to go along, go on for like over 200 years. So it's not, and, and that was with Christians saying that it was okay. And even Christians themselves enslaving. Some things that I've really been enjoying as far as like podcasts, for example, are like Southside Rabbi. I don't know if you know who KB is. He's a Christian rapper. I know of him because of Lauren. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fun fact. Lauren is the one who introduced me into the world of Christian rap. What? 
I never would have thought <laughs> yeah. that. I thought it was really cool in high school. And, and she's like small town, middle of nowhere. <laughs> I was an only child with a lot of iTunes money. <laughs> And so in the Christian music world, I was like, I knew she every black rapper. And I, I was an only child, so I had the room to myself. Often I had the whole house to myself. So I would I would learn the lyrics and I would rap. I was very good. <laughs> I gotta tell the story. Oh man. Oh. So we um so this was a time I was I was in love with Lauren, although there was Obviously, nothing at that point, nothing romantic was going to happen, but I was just so enamored. And she was going to this Andy Minio concert. Oh, and I had heard of him before. I had one of his CDs because it was headed out at a <clears throat> at a missions conference where he performed. And so Lauren's like, you know, I'm going to this concert. Like, do you want to come? And I did know of Molly Music. And so she said, Molly Music is opening for him. And then so I bought my ticket and I was like, oh, well, I got to go. I get to go spend time with Lauren, too. Um, so in the end, Molly Music didn't end up coming. Didn't oh, show man. up. So Andy Minio, like, is a performer. I mean, it took me kind of like, like oh, my gosh, this guy is great. And so he has a song. I can't remember the name. But so Laura and I are standing and it's like everyone's like all these white people, all white Minnesotans in this college auditorium. They're all rapping Andy Minio's songs. And then there's a, a one song he has on the screen behind him, a picture of Barack um, and a picture of Tupac. And they're facing each other. And he starts talking about, like, the hip-hop culture, talking about, like, the hope that people put into voting for Obama and all of that. And then so the lyrics that were being sung, and I kept hearing Lauren going, pot did a lot more for me than Barack. And that that's the lyric. So she was, like, singing loud and proud. And so we got in the car afterwards, and I'm like, Lauren, it's not pot. There's a picture of Tupac. I have no idea who eat. Like, I really am just innocent. Oh, my like, gosh. Feeling like, I'm really cool. I'm like, I don't know Christian rappers, but I do know hip-hop rappers. And uh-huh. he was singing Pac. Yeah, like Did Tupac. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. But Lauren's like, that, no, it's pot. It's pot. Because mm-hmm. he smoked pot. He says it in his other song. <laughs> That is so funny. I grew up in rural Midwest. My parents have a hobby farm. And I, no, I was like, what? Yeah. Totally different culture. But to your point, like KB, I know who KB is because of Lauren. But yes, so Southside Rabbi. Yeah, that's really great. He's super smart. He co-hosts it with his friend, Amin. You will love it. They are hilarious but also really smart and just they just walk in that tension between like two political sides. Like it doesn't have to be all this or this. There's nuance. They're just very thoughtful. I really appreciate it. I'm starting to listen to Pass the Mic again. That's been really good. I'm also going to try to get into other podcasts as well. As far as like resources, I'm looking into like the Blue Letter Bible app which is really helpful, like with concordance and things like that. And just really understanding like what the original words mean and things of that nature. Because even though part of my dismantling, deconstructing is around nationalism and things like that, I do have other big questions um, regarding like LGBTQ things, um, hell, 
Um, I think those are the two other things, two main things. Um, and I know that, you know, as a Westerner, like I'm naturally going to look at scripture a certain way. And so I'm trying to get into books that are going to give me a better understanding of what scripture may have meant to like a Middle Eastern person. So I know my roommate and friend, Amy, was telling me about misreading scripture with Western eyes. And then there's another book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. I don't know anything about that, but it sounded interesting. And so anything along those lines, I'm also interested in reading anything that I can get on my get my hands on that will help me see scripture in the proper context. You know what I really find fascinating and really cool is I'm not like a scholar in any in any sense of that word on the life of Bonhoeffer, but I do know kind of his the timeline of his life and what led him to end up on the side that was the resistance that opposed nationalism in Germany. A big influence of that was the time he spent in the U.S. and the time he spent in black churches. There's actually this book that it's called Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus, and it, it talks about how he came and he found the vibrancy of the church um, to be fueled by kind of the life of the gospel, um, which he couldn't find in the white churches that he was ministering to in upstate New York. And so I was listening to a podcast and this guy who uh, kind of studies Bonhoeffer and has taught a few courses on Bonhoeffer, he said that Bonhoeffer brought back gospel records to Germany and would play them for his students to let them hear what vibrant church life was. And it was from all these black churches that he visited one summer. He and his friend bought a beat up car and they drove around the U.S. And so it's really cool to just, you know, to to see the richness of, you know, what God is doing in even ethnic minority churches and um, people who have gone through pain, who are lamenting, who are grieving. Yeah, I just noticed this like common thread, just not even among um, Black people in America, but like any group that has kind of been like the minority or has been oppressed in any sort of way. I feel like there's a certain fervor that they have in their faith um, that's lacking in groups that have never known oppression on a large scale. This is the first time we've done a podcast together. So Marcus, I think, is like, why aren't you asking more questions? But I'm such a listener. I'm like, I'll just listen to your story. <laughs> Maybe you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you're kind of, you're in the beginning of your deconstruction. Very much so. What do you hope for? You know, there is an end to this process, to this transition. What is the hope for yourself? What what do you want to see coming out of it? I think just more clarity um, on scripture. And I know that everything is not going to be, I'm not going to know everything. Um, but I do have, I do have a lot of questions, but I'm hoping that like my relationship just comes out stronger and that I can continue to do the things that I feel like God is like pulling me towards. I don't want to just utterly walk away because I think I've been through and experienced enough in life to know that God is real. Like I, I know God is real. I know, I know the gospel is good and Jesus is good. So I just want to know him better. I'm hoping to, yeah, just stay in a place where I'm going to be humble and submitted to Jesus. Well, Janita, thank you for this honest and raw and real conversation. Um, 
we really enjoyed talking to you. I really appreciate talking to you guys. Thank you so much for having me. So this conversation with Janita was recorded actually a couple months ago. Uh, and so I had the chance to listen listen again to Janita's story and to her experience. And there was so much that I had missed the first time around. And it, it was really, really powerful to just to catch every nuance and every uh, every piece of her story as it was the first time that I had really listened to the story of a Black woman in America. So I think I was really excited for this conversation. I think in part because it's going to sound very like weird and cliche, but I get really excited when I talk to Black people. <laughs> I really appreciate, for one, I think, the culture that most of my Black friends represent. But it's always very interesting to talk to someone who, who hasn't had this um, experience of a dominant culture in America. And I'm familiar with some of that being an international student in America before, but to hear someone articulate their experience of being Black in the U.S. and then also hearing Janita talk about being Black in Malaysia because that's not something that I've, that's not a conversation that I've had with a Black person before is, you know, like, mm -hmm. yeah, what what they felt being here, how they felt, and to hear her say those things, that was really, it provided like a different perspective of someone else's experience. I didn't have to assume, like I don't have to assume now, right, you know, like, what a black person feels like of being in Malaysia. Like I got to hear it from her. Yeah, I never I never thought that there could be a difference, actually. I, I didn't think about it being a, a different experience for the same person in two different cultures to be mm. perceived differently. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's one thing to be perceived differently because you are in a different culture, but for your... Right. Your Americanness. Yeah. I don't know if I'm putting language to that quite right, but yeah, I didn't think about, I didn't even think about that. So I was glad she shared it. Yeah, because it's the same identity. Right. Right. It's she's American in America and she's also American here. Mm -hmm. Two very different experiential, uh, pro like experiences, essentially. Mm hmm. It wasn't just like a sit down and catch up and tell me about how you are or tell me about growing up, childhood stories. Like this was a conversation that that landed differently in my mind and in my heart and in my body. And I could feel it. And I remember feeling uncomfortable because I'd never, I realize this now, I'd never actually heard a story, heard the life experience of a Black person told to me through relationship and I felt I felt privileged to hear it I felt 
like, wow, I'm learning. I'm learning a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. So two things that really kind of stood out to me, grabbed my grabbed my attention, were when Janita shared about her perspectives and her thoughts regarding intellectual untrustworthiness in the church and some perhaps red flags to be aware of or things to kind of really be thinking about. Uh, so that phrase, intellectual untrustworthiness, what that means, what do we do about it? And, and then another thing that she talked about that stood out to me was there is idolatry in the American church, but it's masked as something else. Mm-hmm. That, that was really clear language that kind of made me like, oh, that makes sense. You know, like that's kind of the root of some of our problems or issues. Thanks for tuning into the Dip Chew podcast. To find ways to connect with our guest today, Janita, please visit our show notes page.